Certified Financial Planner is an innovative, comprehensive, informative, and cutting-edge podcast that discusses financial topics ranging from personal finance, economics, politics, and personal growth. Simply Financial will cover intriguing and thought-provoking questions so that the listener can simply increase their financial IQ. Welcome to Season 2, Episode number 2 of the Simply Financial Podcast. Uh, today, I have with me a special guest, Catherine Dumier. Uh, the topic is a millennial in transition. Uh, I've known Katie for a few years now. I know her extended family, including her brother, her mom and dad. We're actually very good friends. She's a program manager for the Stanton Foundation in Boston. She moved to Boston a short time ago, I guess a little longer than that now. We're going to touch a little bit about that. But uh, if you've listened to the Simply Financial podcast over these last couple of episodes, we've explored millennials quite a bit. We had Marsha LaRue on. She is a career coach and talked a lot about millennials. We had on some other friends of mine that are millennials who are expecting their first baby. And so Katie kind of fits into this theme that we've been doing. And I think she has a wonderful uh, approach and thought about millennials. And it's going to be great exploring some of the key things she has going on in her life especially as it relates to money and wealth. So, Kate, thank you very much for joining Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Yes. So we've talked a lot, actually, before we even started recording. Mm-hmm. So hopefully the conversation is dynamic <laughs> as it was before we actually click the on button. But um, well, f- uh, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about the reputation of millennials. You're a millennial? Yep. What do you think about the reputation of millennials and how are you the same as millennials? So I think the word millennial is used today as a dirty word. Like people say, I'm a millennial, but. And there's always a but. It's never, I'm a millennial and I'm so proud of it. What are you? It's, I'm a millennial, but I'm different because of X, Y, and Z. Um, So I think people generally have a negative. When you say millennial, it's negative. Um, That said, I think that millennials have both positive and probably not so positive characteristics that can are typical of the class. Um, I'm probably like a millennial in that I use technology. Probably, I'm more comfortable using technology than a lot of others Mm -hmm. um, who are older than me, and I use it every day to do things from talk to people to bank to transfer money to. I don't know, listen to music, right? Sure. I, I use And, and I you're use quick to adopt technology also, yeah, right? It's not just what you knew five, ten years ago. If there's a new technology, you're probably fairly quick yeah, to embrace it and adopt it. Well, part of that is because my fiancé's in IT, right? So he yeah. loves the new tech gadgets. Mm-hmm. He brings home God knows what to grow that basil in, in the house and have the Alexa <laughs> in every room and all that noise. Um, I call them like who's a what's it's and right. zip zaps and I don't know what they are, but yes, I have them all, mm-hmm. and it's it's easy for me to u- learn how to use them, and I'm okay. I'm not. I'm comfortable using them. I'm not fearful of them. You know, I don't put them in a cage in the corner of the room, um, and so that I think is very typical of a millennial, right? Yeah, and I, I, think I start so. adopting that into my everyday life, but I'm not the millennial who's glued to my phone at dinner because I'd rather talk to people who weren't there than talk mm-hmm. to the people across the table from me. Um, so I think that that's the, the way that I'm different is that I know when to sh- – I, I don't want to say shut it off. Um, mm-hmm. I know when to 
act like an adult. I guess that means that I'm saying that millennials aren't adults. But yeah, you see what I'm but saying? it's but you know that technology has a place in your world, and you could leverage it, and you could use it, but it's not. All and there's a way to use there's a way to use it in a professional capacity, right? Right. It's it's today it's professional to, to check a phone fast and put it away, or mm-hmm. you know, excuse yourself to make a phone call or mm-hmm. something. Like there's a way to professionally do it and respectfully do it, and there's a way to not respectfully do it. Okay, but you said most people when they say I'm a millennial, I'm a millennial, but so what is your but? I think it's if I had to say it succinctly, it's that. For how old I am, I think I have my life as together as I can, right? I I have a good job that I'm happy with, that I feel comfortable in. Um, I'm getting married in a year. I have a savings account. I don't rely on my parents financially. I pay my own bills. Like I feel like when you think of a millennial, you think of the kid who lives in his mom's basement until he's 45, right? Right. And that's not me. I'm very, I pride myself on being independent and having a, a, my own life. And I feel like that's the, that's the difference is that I don't rely on others. I like, I've, I feel comfortable being independent and making my own way. Okay. So you have, you went to undergrad yep. in Rhode Island at yep. Roger Williams. Yep. You got your law degree from the University of Virginia. Yep. And so you must hang around and know lots of millennials. How many millennials do you hang around with in your large network, not just your best friends, but your large network, Fit the demini- mostly fit the definition of millennials, this uh, unfavorable impression that kind of bangs around the public consistently? Yeah, so I think that the people I hang around with more are people who I went to law school with. And that's right. just because it's a fresher experience for me. So those are the people who knew me closest to the age I am now, so we have the most in common, you know. Um, and so I would say that those people are all working professionally. They're they're more like me than like the millennial. Okay. I'm putting air quotes in. Right. You um, can't see that on the <laughs> podcast, but she's doing air quotes. Um, then the millennial stereotype you hear about the, like I said, the 45 year old right. in the basement. Um, but that might also be a self-selecting thing because they chose to go to law school. And so they knew they wanted to work in the law and they, for the most part, got jobs at law firms after they graduated. And there are a couple of anomalies here and there. Um, but I would say that's the, the trend of the friends that I have. So you're engaged? Yeah. Right, Kyle? Yep. So he's from the Midwest, yep. so he grew up in a different area that you grew up in. You grew up in Connecticut and have stayed mostly, if not exclusively, on the eastern seaboard, right? Yep. So he's from the Midwest, and there's this traditional Midwest values kind of thought process. So is Kyle a millennial in the worst sense of the definition, <laughs> or what's Kyle's I'm a millennial but? No, so Kyle's uh, Kyle is... Also, as I mentioned, he's he's an IT guy, so he's big into tech, and that's a big part of his life. And he spends a lot of his free... I think the, a difference between Kyle and me is that he spends a lot of his free time engaging in tech, yeah. you know, playing games mm-hmm. or whatever, and I don't. I use tech for stuff that I think makes my life easier or makes me more efficient as a human being. Um, but he uses it more for enjoyment, entertainment, and so maybe he's on his phone more than I am or on the computer more than I am because okay. he uses it as an entertainment tool. I don't. Um, but so that's, I guess how he's like a millennial, which doesn't exactly answer your question. Um, but the, his, butt is probably that I've never known somebody who can just put his nose down and work, you know, mm-hmm. like 
he he's, so it's the work ethic. He he had no issue picking up and moving to a new city. He moved from Indiana to Boston, and he said, "I'm going to find a job. I'm going to work. I'm going to make my right. way." And it wasn't. He had no safety net. He had no family in Boston. Nobody who, if he failed finding a job or whatever, could support him. Um, and he still had the stomach to to go out and do it, and is still there two years later. But when he when he moved from Indiana to Boston, not only everything he said, but he was also changing industries. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was he taught science um, at sixth, seventh, and eighth grade science in Indiana, and full disclosure, moved to Boston because he was in a relationship with a um, a girl who was going to Tufts. Okay, getting a dental degree at Tufts, wanted to be closer to her. Moved out. I see. Uh, okay, moved out to Boston. And there were a lot of hoops to jump through to get a teaching certification in Boston um, that he didn't have to jump Mm -hmm. through in Indiana. So he couldn't teach for the first year because he couldn't get all the certifications in time to teach. Um, So he moved and started a job in IT because that's what he could get. And he he liked computers. He liked IT. And so that's, that's why he moved. But I think what I respect most about it is obviously the relationship ended. He's not still with her, it turns out. Uh, <laughs> I, I would hope so. Yeah, but he stayed, and he said, "I'm going to be. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to go back to Indiana. I'm not right. going to move. You know, I'm not going to move back home. This is my new hometown. I'm going to make it my own. It's going to in the new city, work. new industry, new city, new industry, and with a failed relationship or a relationship that ended. Um, so that that's pure American dream yeah. kind of stuff. But that's also not too dissimilar for you, right? Because you yeah. were you went to University of Virginia for yeah. law school. And then out of law school, what was your first job out of law school? I worked for a large firm in D.C. as an associate attorney. Okay. So that was the path you were on, right? Yeah. I mean, so you went to law school to do that's why, this. That's why I went, yeah. Is, is uh, University of Virginia a good law school? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I like to think so. <laughs> Isn't it like top ten? It is, yeah. All right. You're being a little humble, no? <laughs> I had a great experience, and I love Charlottesville, and I love UVA. So then, so the plan was to be a lawyer, to go to a top-tier law firm, yep. high-powered yep. job, yep. work hard, I assume make a lot of money. Yep. Is, is partnership something you think about? I didn't really know. I guess I'd never, I went to law school not having worked in a big law firm before. I, some people go to, some people go to law school after having been paralegals or, or support staff in a big firm, see the lifestyle, say, I want that, and then do it. I didn't do that. I went straight from undergrad to law school, um, and so I didn't have that experience. So I knew I wanted to be a lawyer because I like what lawyers do. Okay. I like thinking critically. I like writing argument. I like um, I like writing generally. And so I knew I liked what lawyers did. Um, and so everyone that I knew was applying for big firm jobs out of law school, and so that's what I did too. That was the easiest path out of law school, thinking I'll see what it's like, and I'll go from there. That was the plan. Okay, so then you changed plans. I did. <laughs> so I'm sure there's lots that goes into it, but the short story is you decided to leave that job. Yep. And to leave that city. Yep. And you went to Boston. Yep. Kind of like Kyle. Um, you didn't really have ties to Boston. It's closer to Connecticut yep. than Virginia is. Yeah. Um, and you got a different job, somewhat unrelated to the pure attorney in a law firm kind of thing, right? Yep. So walk us through that decision-making, especially a little bit on the money side of picking up and moving and leaving the law career that you had prepared for. Not that you probably still draw on. Yeah, of course. I do every day. But it's 
It's a but, little different. But it's, it's certainly different. So I guess... So I, walk us through that, yeah. So I got to the firm, and I met really great human beings, and I liked the people I worked with. Um, but when I looked around and I looked at what I was doing versus what fifth-year associates were doing versus what counsel were doing versus what partners were doing, I didn't see myself on that track in the way that I thought I might. Um, I looked at what... I have a friend named Andrew who's an awesome guy, and he and I worked together on a lot of cases, and he was a fifth-year associate at the time, or a sixth-year associate. And I looked at the kind of jobs he, were, he was getting, the kind of projects he was asked to do, and I said, do I want to be doing that in five years or six years? And the answer was no. Okay. I didn't, I, he had um, – it was just such a time suck. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him a lot about this decision. And he had – at the time, he had two kids, one on the way. Um, his wife was a stay-at-home mom. And he said to me, I talked to him a lot about what he liked and didn't like. And he stayed, he was at the law firm because he, he made a lot of money. And okay. Because he could, he could support a stay at home wife and two kids and with one mm-hmm. on the way and in, in a pretty expensive city. And so he, what was keeping him in was the finances. And he encouraged me, he said, before you, if you're thinking about leaving, do it before you get to my point. Because there's a lot more that complicates this decision. Once you have a family and wow. once you have kids, and it, it gets more complicated. So you didn't know Andrew before. You met him on the job, I met right? him on so the job, yeah. a new friendship yep. slash yeah. work relationship. Yep. So that's pretty impressive. He's an awesome guy. He's, yeah. he's a, He was an open book. He really, really fantastic. He's a huge Patriots fan, so he and I still talk oh, every Sunday. Right. Well, we're not going to go there, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> but... Uh, he also, he went to UVA undergrad, so we had that connection. So we immediately developed a friendship. But when I talked to him about, because we were on so many cases together and you work really long hours at the firm, you get really close to the people you're on the cases with pretty quickly. And we would talk, you know, I would say, I don't, it doesn't look like you're, you know, doing something you love here. And he's like, well, I, I like it. Um, I would rather, I would probably rather be doing something else, but... He's this doing, pays he was my doing bills. what he had right. to for his, for his family, family and where he was. And he developed a knowledge base that made mm-hmm. it a good fit. And yeah. And so you were looking there and thought that, although I'm sure you would have liked the money, it wouldn't have been fulfilling. Well, I saw how much time. I mean, the, the most heart, the, I guess the most heartbreaking story that Andrew said that I said, I don't want that to be me, is that he was on a work trip visiting a client on his twin's first birthday and couldn't get out of it, had to go. And because the firm told him that he had to go. And that's just not something that I wanted to have. And it broke his heart. He's a family man. He's a great guy. And he didn't want that. Sure. And so I, I guess that was really what helped push me in that direction was making that calculus. I, I, don't have, I didn't have anyone to take care of except for me at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked at I, I, I took a substantial pay cut when I mm-hmm. moved from the firm to um, the foundation. But when I looked at... I could I could build a life with what the foundation gave me, but I didn't want to be stuck in a life that I couldn't afford. Okay. So you picked up and you go to Boston, mm-hmm. and you get a job in a different field. How did that play out? Talk to us about money-wise. Did um, Was this a lateral move money-wise? Did you make more? Did you move, make less? Because you weren't at the law firm that long, right? No, I was, I was still making a first-year associate salary. Okay. Um, but it was still a substantial pay cut. Okay. So your consideration was, this is not going to take me where I want to go, just holistically. I'm going to pick up, go to Boston, try something different. Yeah. That'll be hopefully good money-wise, but more. Well, I thought that 
Um, I did. I did a fair amount of research before I made the move because I said. I bet you did. I <laughs> just because of who I am as a person. Yes. I I looked at what the pathways from my current position could be and what those um, what those salaries might look like. So I had a bigger financial picture, understanding that the pay increases weren't going to be the same as the lockstep system that a law firm has. Um, I understood that my earning potential would eventually cap out similarly, assuming that I advanced the same way as I could in the from associate to partner. I guess okay. the difference is that there are a lot more intermediate steps at a okay. law firm. You can get second year, third year, fourth year salaries are different. So you, you were taking a step back, but it was just you that you were taking care of mm-hmm. and you were young in your career. You were willing to take a, a step or two back, but you weren't sacrificing your earnings potential over the long arc of your career. Right. My, my earning, I think my earning potential stayed the same. Um, it was just that I was, I was starting in a different position, right? Okay. So the, the program officer position that I had just by virtue of what it is makes less than a first year associate, but it also, it has bigger increases along the way. Okay. So let's switch gears slightly and just talk about your views on money. Um, what did you learn about money growing up? Um, I can't recall like a specific conversation that I had with my parents sitting down and teaching me how to, you know, what, how to, how to pay a credit card bill, what are mortgages. I can't, but I always knew that they did it. I think, you know, we talked a little bit before the podcast about it, like learning through observation. Okay. Um, and then I, I feel really lucky because as you mentioned earlier, I have an older brother, you know, Brian, um, and he was also kind of the canary in the, in the coal mine where I could watch him do what he was going to do. He's seven years older than I am, six and a half. And so, uh, I could kind of watch him and ask him questions before I actually had to do it myself. So my brother has been a huge resource for me. As I make any decision, I usually loop him in um, and ask his opinion because he's done it before just seven years prior. Okay. And would you say you grew up in a rich family, very poor, average middle class, upper middle class? I think probably, I mean, middle class. Um, both of my parents are in education. My dad was a middle school principal for a long time. My mom teaches middle school, um, reading and language arts. So I think, I mean, I never needed anything, but there were things that I wanted that I didn't get. Okay. So you went to undergrad relatively close to home, but then you went to law school in Virginia, as we said. So I imagine at Virginia, you probably got exposed to more different types of people economically, socioeconomically. Uh, views on money, ethnically, all of that stuff. So could you point to anything that you might have gotten exposed to in law school that maybe challenged or made you rethink what you learned about money growing up? I can't think of a specific person. Um, I know that there were a lot of folks who, as you mentioned, there were a lot of folks who came from families that were better off than mine. Right. There were, financially, there were a lot that came from folks that, you know, they were on full scholarships and they came from families that were less affluent than mine. Um, but I think the commonality was that I actually, I don't know what to say to that question, if I'm honest. Okay. <laughs> so, so how about, okay, so you learn what you did about money, you go to school, but you're learning about debt, right? Yeah. And you're thinking about work-wise. Was there ever a time that what you learned at home kind of changed? Not really? I think that like the difference was that 
my parents didn't go into significant debt for their educational ex- expenses the way okay. I did. And so I was in a new position in that, I mean, my parents sweated out buying their first condo and I think it was like 60 grand. Right. Right. And I, full disclosure, probably spent a quarter of a million dollars on my brain so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they helped counsel me through, here's what we should do, here's what okay. we can do. But their experience was a lot uh, less severe than mine, I okay. guess. They had to pay off a $60,000 mm-hmm. condo as their first house, and I'm trying to pay off my $250,000 uh, law school. So so then you get into the business world, right, between the law uh, the law position as well as the program manager at the Stanton Foundation. Now that you've been working a few years and you're out of school, have your thoughts on money evolved or changed? Have you yeah. learned new things? Tell yeah. us about that. Um, so when I was in law school, right, I, was, I took out loans um, from the government, like a lot of people do. Yeah. And so I was making negative money, right? Because I was spending money that I had to pay interest on. So I I was making negative money. So I certainly wasn't building a savings account or a retirement account or anything like that because anything any money that I put in there was more it was really expensive money. Right. So I wasn't building those things. Um, and then when I got into the working world, I started to have an income, so I could not only pay off my educational debt or start start paying off my educational debt, but I could also start. Um, you know, saving for retirement or saving for a rainy day or, you know, right now I'm saving for a house, um, saving for our wedding, things like that. And I, I, now that I have an income, I realize, you know, what on paper looks like a decent amount of money after you pay all of, you pay yourself and put your money in all of these different places. Right. Uh, all of a sudden it's not that much. (laughs) So, so let's jump ahead for a moment. So let's fast forward, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and you, you and Kyle are going to be financially successful, live the American mm-hmm. dream. What do you think the keys will be for you to be successful over, you know, again, the next 10, 15, 20 years? What do you think you've learned so far are going to be key in you being financially successful, you and Kyle being financially successful? Well, I think a, a huge key for me is building a budget and sticking to it as best you can, but um, adjusting it as necessary. So for example, I built out a budget when I first moved to Boston based on the salary that I was making at the time. And then when I got a raise, I adjusted that salary when I realized I wanted to, or I adjusted that budget. Excuse me. I, when I, um, when I realized I wanted to save for a house and didn't want to pay a lease anymore, I adjusted my savings. Or when, so I think the the key for me was always staying grounded and knowing what I'm doing on paper instead of just winging it. Um, I'm a natural planner anyway, so seeing things in an Excel spreadsheet is nice. Um, but always having realizing if I overspend one month, then maybe I need to save extra the next month, and actually seeing that out okay. has helped me stay on target. So you think part of the key to success would be staying grounded, having a plan. So you're aware of what you're doing. You're purposeful in what you're doing. You also mentioned, though, that you need to be flexible because life happens. Yeah. What you think you want may be different later on or um, life may throw you curveballs, but to, to have a plan. Yeah, I think that that's, that's exactly right. Like, Have your budget, but don't be afraid when it you deviate from it because you're going to some months because your car is going to break down or your heating bill is going to be higher than expected or... 
a million things could happen. And so realizing that one month you might save a little extra, one month you might spend a little extra, but actually knowing what you're doing instead of just swiping a card and figuring out what happened later. Okay, excellent. So you, you mentioned that you're a natural planner. Um, one of the questions I had written down in preparation for this was, are you a natural saver or a natural spender? I'm definitely a saver. Definitely a saver. Um, the joke that I tell is like a long time ago, if it were, if I were in like 1920, I would hide my money under my mattress. Um, every paycheck I just throw under there mm-hmm. in cash. I I like to. There's something gratifying about like putting money in a savings account for me and watching that grow over time and realizing that um, I'm accumulating wealth that I can spend on something big or important to me like a house. All right. So you are saving, so you, you're getting married. Yep. You're saving for a house. 2018 is going to be a big year. <laughs> a lot of big, like, adult, I think you used that term earlier yeah. in the conversation. I mean, these are really fabulous, blessed events. Yeah. American dream. I mean, it's awesome. I'm so happy for you and Thanks. Kyle. Yeah. Um, but how scary is it? It's terrifying, <laughs> right? Um, between my educational debt and a potential mortgage, I'll be more in debt in the next year um, than I have been ever before. And so that's scary. But like I said, going back, what, what grounds you, that it's easy to get overwhelmed by that, right? There's a big number at the end of a bill that has your name on it, and that can be scary, and I get that. But what helps keep me grounded is having that plan and going back and saying, but this is what it looks like on a monthly level. This is what it looks like on a yearly level. And being able to wrap my brain around doing it and saying, that's doable, like a $500,000 house looks like a lot of money on paper and it's scary, but if you break it down and look at what it looks like monthly plus two incomes, you know, you can figure out how to do it. You're not doing it impulsively or without a plan. So some people, they'll just, they'll get married and they'll say, we got married, we got to buy a house and they buy a house and then three months in, they're like, yeah, we bought too much house. Like we have no money for food, but so that's... I'm really sensitive to that. And I mean, for what it's worth, I... I made the financial decision to buy a house um, when Kyle and I were dating, and I was I was gonna buy, I was just gonna buy a house, mm-hmm. um, and had no. It wasn't the impulsive. Let's get married. Let's put up a white picket fence. Mm-hmm. Let's start a family. It wasn't that. It was this is a good financial decision because I hate paying someone else's mortgage. I want to pay my own mortgage. Um, so it was a a strategic financial decision I made, not like an impulse lifestyle mm-hmm. decision that I made. Excellent. So you're a natural saver. Uh, how would you describe Kyle? He is too. Maybe even more than I am. Um, I think I kind of diversify my money a little bit more where I'm comfortable saying I'm saving this for X and that for Y. And so a few hundred dollars here, a few hundred dollars there. And I kind of spread my money out over a few different savings mechanisms. Kyle more like saves for a thing. Like, mm-hmm. I need to save for whatever, I need to save for this, okay. I need to save for that. And now that we've kind of started um, blending our lives more intimately that we're getting, now that we're getting married, it's more like, well, I'll save for this and you save for that. I'll save for this right. and you save for that. So Good teamwork. Um, yeah, yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, are there any mistakes or missteps that you could point to that are kind of cautionary, like things that you did that you wish you didn't do? Because it sounds like you've had success upon success and you're obviously very smart. You went to a great law school. You made a good career move. Moving to Boston's worked out um, in a number of ways, career-wise, closer to family, meeting Kyle, all that stuff. So any mistakes? 
Um, I like to, that's tough. I think that, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, um, but I'll put, I'll, I'll pretend I'm my dad for a second. All right. And I'll say I would be in a much different financial position if I'd gone to a different law school that offered me a full scholarship. Um, because I wouldn't be in severe educational debt, which might, which would make my, I, I, the, the money that goes to the fund that pays off my debt now would be money that I have available. So you made a decision to go to an elite top 10 law school Mm -hmm. instead of, uh, with second tier or a top 25, like between 10 and 25, there was a significant cost difference. Yeah, there was. And I think that, I mean, for me, um... Maybe I just drank the UVA Kool-Aid, but it was the greatest three years of my life. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, and so for that reason, I don't know if I'd classify it as a, a mistake. mistake mm-hmm. But I think that if I look at it from purely if, through purely a financial lens and not a lifestyle lens or an experience lens, you might call the decision to pay a lot of money for a law school degree when, the, when you had an opportunity to pay little no. or nothing for that degree might have I think you could classify as a mistake. Okay. That's that's good because it's complicated because you can't just it's not just economic. Right, you it's, have to you have to live it for 3 years, right? Yeah. So you have to enjoy the experience. Mm-hmm. Um it's not just like like it's not just like spending money on something that you know you experience for a day or two days. It's you know spe- you have to live this life for three years, and so there's a lot that goes into that decision. Makes sense. But I would be in a significantly finan- different financial position had I not chosen to encumber that debt at that time. All right, good. You um, final question, I think. Um, what's something you splurge on? You're a natural planner. Yeah. You're a natural saver. Um, give us an example of some place in your budget that you kind of splurge. Um, I think that it's, it's not like a, there isn't like a class of stuff that I like every time I see this or every time I see that I want to spend on it. But every so often, you know, I'm online shopping or I'm walking along Newbury street or, you know, I'm, I'm at the mall and I say, I haven't spent on something. I deserve that. So like, I like my Lululemon leggings and I like, you know, there are certain things that. Are they expensive? Yeah, I mean, compared to like, compared to like, yeah, I don't know. Going so to every once in a while, if you're either online using technology as a millennial, yeah. or you're, you know, walking down the street, you'll come upon something and you'll buy it impulsively. Yeah, I, not I, I price guess sensitive. That that's my, I guess that that's my difference. Is like, it's not an item that I splurge on, but it's more like I allow myself to be impulsive for a second and say. Yeah, I really want that. Like, there's, I don't need it. And in your mind, you categorize it on, um, I've been really good, I'm going to do this. So this is, uh, Kyle and I were talking about this, and I think that this is a really good example. So Kyle loves sweets and ice cream and sugar, and he loves it. And so most nights, some nights after dinner, he'll get a bowl of ice cream, we'll put hot fudge on it, sprinkles the whole nine, you know, like he's a nine-year-old building his own Sunday, right? Sounds good, though. Uh, It is. It looks delicious. But anyway, like... He'll say, like he'll build his he'll build his big Sunday, but then for I'll say the next night after dinner, Kyle, you gonna grab some ice cream? No, you know I had ice cream last night, or no, you know two days later, no, I had that big Sunday two days before. I'm good for it today. Mm-hmm. So it's more that like you indulge in that big ice cream Sunday, maybe once, maybe twice mm-hmm. a week, but you certainly can't have it every day. Very good. And I feel like that's what it is for me. So with the shopping, people get themselves into trouble if they do that too consistently and too recklessly because then you can't take care of 
other important priorities. Right. So you pick your spots. And I've all, I mean, I've also been a little bit indulgent in thinking about wedding stuff because I wasn't going to bring that up. But... Thing. So I mean, it's a once in a lifetime thing. So I haven't gone dress shopping yet. I'm going to go in, in January, but I have an idea of what I'd like to spend. But realistically, if if it comes in above that, I'm, I'm probably going to It's going to be a big number. Yeah, I'm probably going to Very buy. good. Well, thank you so much. It was an enjoyable conversation. <laughs> I was so looking forward to it. And uh, you were a great guest. Thank, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for having me. We'll have to get your brother on an upcoming episode uh, so that... Uh, I think he's a little jealous you had me on first. I believe that is true, <laughs> yes. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Simply Financial Podcast. Uh, as always, I would appreciate it if you would... Uh, share this with friends, family, coworkers, and also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn. You could also get more information about me and Elliott Wealth Management Services, my financial planning firm, at www.elliotwealth.com. Elliott has two L's, two T's. Uh, again, thank you to Kate for joining me, and I will be back with you on an upcoming episode very soon. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of Sage Point Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note, the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies, websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through Sage Point Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with Sage Point Financial. 